This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Support for the Science Magazine podcast comes from BioRad Laboratories. From developing diagnostics to improving life science research, BioRad has been advancing discovery for over 60 years. Check out the CRISPR toolbox to access cutting-edge resources and experience in virtual reality how genomes are edited faster with BioRad's CRISPR-Cas9 workflow. Explore the toolbox at bio-rad.com slash defineyourflow. Welcome to the Science Podcast for December 22nd, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, our last of the year, David Grimm is here with his favorite online stories of 2017. And yes, there's one about dogs. Adrian Cho talks about science's breakthrough of the year, the detection of two merging neutron stars via their gravitational waves and other signals. And lastly, Jen Golbeck is here to discuss the year in books. What did we love, what did we miss out on, and what we should read next. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about the best online <laughs> stories for the news site for 2017. Welcome, Dave. Thanks, sir. Okay, Dave, what makes these the best stories? The best. Well, you know, the best is subjective. As you know, Sarah, we're doing our breakthrough of the year, and that is our biggest scientific breakthroughs of 2017. These are not those. Okay, okay. <laughs> these aren't necessarily the biggest science stories of the year, and maybe not necessarily even science stories you've heard about, but these are some of our favorites from the year, just some personal favorites, and also sprinkled with some of our most popular, so stories that readers really responded to, whether or not they sort of made it into the national conversation or okay, not. Okay, so let's start right off with placentas. Okay, the story answered a question some of us didn't know we should be <laughs> asking. Should humans eat their own placentas, the mother, not the baby, after they give birth to a child? Why? Right. Well, this Why? is something that a lot of other animals do. In fact, a lot of other mammals, the moms eat the placenta. It's thought to maybe help with uh, birthing pain and maybe stimulates them to start taking care of their pups. But this implications for humans have been unclear. And this is something that people have been doing with more frequency over the past few decades. And it's been endorsed by celebrities like Kim Kardashian and Mad Men's January Jones. And so the question is, nobody's really studied whether eating your own placenta actually does you any good. Things like treating postpartum depression 
or making you feel happier or maybe even improving your energy levels. So these scientists decided to try to figure that out. So they did feed people placenta. They in this did. Study. And basically, they didn't feed them raw placentas. The way that most people consume placentas these days is actually you um, steam it, you dehydrate it, you sort of grind it into a powder, and then you take it like a vitamin like pill. And that's what the researchers gave these women. They divided women into two groups, half of whom took the pill, half of whom took a placebo. And lo and behold, the women who took the placenta pill didn't experience any alleviation of symptoms like depression. They didn't get more energy. Mm-hmm. They didn't seem to feel any closer with their infants than they would otherwise. Now, did they eat their own placenta? They did eat their own placentas. Oh. So, but again, not raw. So one of the things the study didn't look at is pain relief because we know that's why some mammals eat their placentas, and that's something that the researchers didn't study in this study. And it also was a pretty small sample size, just a few dozen women. So Sounds it, like there's still room for the still, placenta debate. If you're a real big advocate for eating your own placenta, there's still a little bit of wiggle room to suggest that maybe the jury's still out. Okay, let's talk about another story with a little bit of room for debate. You picked this one, and it's about an error in our understanding of monarch butterfly biology that's been outstanding for like four decades. What didn't we know about these migrating monarchs? Yeah, this is one of my favorite stories of the year because it's a bit of a scientific detective story. In 1975, scientists published a paper that said that monarch butterflies have 30 chromosomes. And that has persisted in the literature ever since. It was cited in in a 2004 paper. And this factoid has been repeated over and over again. But this year, a scientist decided to figure out whether that was actually true. Um, he suspected a mistake because the authors of the original papers were from India, and they were look, said they were looking at monarch butterflies, but there are no monarch butterflies in, in <laughs> India. There's actually a, a, a very similar-looking species that's not a monarch. So he said, maybe they looked at the wrong butterfly. So he got some monarchs, went back to his lab, crushed them up, looked at their chromosomes, and lo and behold, they had 28 oh. not 30 chromosomes. Okay, so I'll buy that monarchs do not migrate all the way to India, but how do we know which one is right? <laughs> well, that's a great question. And so there's another twist because right after he published his paper this year, another team published a paper on monarch butterflies showing that they found that they have, lo and behold, 30 chromosomes. <laughs> there we go. There's so, the... you know, there's a, there's a, could be a few things going on here. One is that somebody's just doing it wrong and getting the numbers wrong. Another possibility is that they're not looking at the species they think they are. And a third possibility is that this um, group that monarchs belong to has very interesting genetics where sometimes chromosome number not only varies between species, but within species, with even within individuals, different cells have different number of chromosomes. So maybe there isn't actually a right answer. But regardless, it's a really fun, cool scientific detective story. Okay, definitely. Well, let's move away from biology and go over to the physical side. This one that we're going to talk about first is about how shoelaces come untied. And this had a really nice piece of video where the researchers had some insane frame rate and they were able to really see the laces as they bounced up and down. So what do we learn from watching this video? Well, yeah, this is real news you can use, right? (laughs) A lot of us are often frustrated. We tie our shoes and 10 minutes later, it seems like they're untied again. Remarkably, no scientists or maybe not very remarkably, no scientists (laughs) have decided to investigate this question until now. The videos helped and it wasn't just videos. They're using slow motion. They've got pendulums. They've got weights on the shoelaces, all this, all, all this crazy stuff that they're doing. One of the things that they found was that 
the force experienced by these knots as they untie is more than the force that some roller coasters generate. And as you mentioned, there is news you can use here. There is a knot that is less likely to get untied, right? Right. There's two types of knots that are commonly used. One's called a square knot. One's called a granny knot. I won't bore you with the explanations, but there's actually a video that shows the difference and why one's better than the other. And the researchers actually found that that was true, that the square knot is better. They also found that if you just stomp your feet up and down, say for 15 minutes, your shoelaces are not going to become untied. It's the, actually the act of walking. Something about walking is what causes them to become untied. The researchers aren't clear exactly why that is. But, you know, beyond shoelaces, Sarah, because we always got to sort of carry this stuff beyond yeah. the current state for applications – Surgical sutures, this could have applications, you know, maybe better ways to tie surgical sutures. Even DNA knots, you know, DNA can tie itself into knots, and this may have implications for drug discovery applications beyond your own two feet. Okay. So one more physical sciences study that you picked here. This one is on using balloons to build tunnels. I didn't see this one when it came out. These are for polar researchers, right? Yeah, this one's a lot of fun. This is uh, researchers in the Arctic. And one of the big problems in the Arctic is, first of all, it's really cold. Mm -hmm. It's very isolated, which means you're really far away from infrastructure or building materials. So if somebody says, hey, I want to build a research laboratory here, or at least or even someplace to sleep at night, you can't just sort of like go down to your Home Depot, get lumber and wood and metal and stuff like that. You got to ship all that stuff in, which is really expensive, very time consuming. And then when you're done with it, or if it fails, then it just stays there and litters the environment. So these researchers came up with this really clever solution, which is they basically dig a trench and they inflate this balloon that's about, about the shape of a hot dog. And then they cover that balloon with tons of ice. And then they wait for that ice to harden, and then they deflate the balloon. And all of a sudden, now you've got this really massive tunnel that you can put stuff in. And is it warm in there? Is that I mean, you can get warm inside <laughs> of it, kind of? I don't know what it's like in there. I certainly wouldn't want to spend the night there unless I had to. But what's really cool is once you deflate this balloon and take it away, now you've got this nice tunnel. You don't have any building materials left behind. And the researchers actually showed that these structures are more stable than structures built with wood and aluminum. Very cool. Okay, Dave, we can't end the year without a story about animals. So what what animal story made the list? You know, it was a hard choice, especially since I wrote a couple of dog stories this year. I was very tempted to put my own stories on the list, but I decided that wasn't a good idea. So we chose another dog story, and this one is a really cute one. It is baby talk to dogs. So who's a good boy? Are you a good boy? Are you a good boy? You know, we talk to dogs, especially puppies, a lot like we talk to our human infants. And researchers in this study wanted to figure out do the dogs care? Do they actually care that we're talking to them they like that? They wag their tails, Dave. We know they care. <laughs> well, that's what they wanted to find out. And so there's really the, – the methodology here is kind of silly. They, they took 30 women and they showed them pictures of really cute puppies and adult dogs and they sort of had them talk to them. Yeah. And, of course, they're using a lot of that dog baby talk. And then they played those recordings for a group of puppies and a group of adult dogs. And when the puppies heard these recordings, they got super excited. They started running around, wagging their tails. They did something like called a play bow where they sort of do this kind of yoga pose on their front paws. And that's often seen as an invitation to want to play or interact with a human. But surprisingly, the adult dogs didn't really respond. They could care less what they heard on the speakers. It was really only the puppies that responded. So baby talk is for baby dogs. Baby talk is for baby dogs. But more than that, actually, the researchers say, you know, when we do that with our human infants, it helps them learn wars. And the same might be true for baby dogs. Very cool. Okay. I can't. We got to do it. What about cats? <laughs>
I talk and maybe talk to my cats. Me too. And I'm pretty sure, Sarah, that they don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Dave, thanks for the rundown. This is only half the stories that you pulled out as the top for the year. Where can listeners find out about the rest of this year's top stories? Yeah, we've got five more stories, including one of our most popular stories of the year. You can check all these out and a really cool compilation of some of our favorite images of the year as well on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. Stay tuned for our Breakthrough of the Year coverage with Adrian Cho up next. Now staff writer Adrian Cho is here to talk about the Breakthrough of the Year, which we are calling Cosmic Convergence, poetically, on the site. And it involves the latest detection from LIGO of a pair of merging neutron stars. Hi, Adrian. Uh, hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited about this breakthrough. Yeah, I, I well, I mean, it's the first time in the 22 years that uh, science has done breakthroughs of the year that the same experimental team uh, has been wow. involved in the breakthrough two years running. So um, you have to tip your hat to the people who built the LIGO gravitational wave detector and also to their Virgo colleagues. But uh, they said that this would be a spectacular tool um, and not just a great discovery, you know, with gravitational waves. They said that this would pay out handsomely, and they showed it right off the bat. It does have some similarities to last year's, which was the detection of gravitational waves from merging black holes by uh, this newly online gravitational wave detector. This year also includes this kind of detection. What makes it different from what happened last year? So both observations involve the detection of gravitational waves. These are ripples in space itself set off when incredibly massive objects collide with each other. And last year's observation was just of the waves themselves because they were generated when two massive black holes swirled into each other. And black holes are the pure gravitational fields left behind from incredibly massive stars that have collapsed to nothing. There was nothing to see besides the gravitational waves. And physicists been, had been searching for them for 40 years, and they finally got the sensitivity enough to see them. And when they were discovered, people said, well, you know, something even more spectacular could come along if we could see, instead of the merger of black holes, the merger of two neutron stars, because the neutron stars are made out of the densest matter there is. It's almost pure neutrons. They're essentially giant atomic nuclei. And when they collide, they not only produce gravitational waves, but they also produce a spectacular explosion that can be seen in all different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum with different uh, telescopes and gamma ray detectors and and radio telescopes and what have you. So how did the signal from the neutron stars differ from the black hole? Was it a different signature right away? Did they know what they were getting as soon as LIGO uh, sensed the gravitational waves? Yes, they did. And that's because the uh, neutron stars are so small compared to the black holes that they've seen collide, right? The black holes Uh, When two of them swirl into each other, they produce very low frequency waves with frequencies of 10 cycles per second. The neutron stars, they went around each other at hundreds of uh, cycles per second and essentially produced a hum that went on for a minute and 40 seconds. And so just from that signal alone, researchers knew immediately that what they were seeing was the collision of two neutron stars and not two black holes. And it was time to mobilize so many different instruments to, to look at what happened next. That's right. This has been part of the plan from the very beginning that when the gravitational wave detectors 
detected something, they would sound the alarm and all the optical and radio and infrared astronomers would try to find evidence of the source as well. And this time, things worked out really, really, really well. Crucially, the Italian-French Virgo gravitational wave detector, which had started taking data in earnest only 17 days earlier, saw a weak signal. It was strong enough for them to combine their, their results with LIGO, and then they were able, the three of them working together, were able to pinpoint the source within about 30 square degrees on the sky, which is about 120 times bigger than the moon, but uh, is still a fairly narrow patch. And then all these telescopes slewed to that spot on the sky. Well, Adrian, I want to ask some very basic questions here. Okay. How far away was the Kilanova? 130 million years. It was 130 oh. million. But that actually is the closest uh, short gamma ray burst that's ever been detected by a large margin. Well, that's a good thing, though, right? We don't want to be that close to a gamma ray burst. We do not want to be right next door to a gamma ray burst. That's true. But it is interesting that it was so close. Yeah. Um, so they got they got very, very lucky. And then I guess the other thing I wanted to ask was, this was seen with optical telescopes. I don't know if I've seen any pictures of it. Was it something that, you know, you would be able to see an image of? So at 130 million light years, it's just a point. And yeah. if you look at it, it's a bright spot on the edge of a bigger bright spot, which is the heart of the galaxy that it's in. One of the truly stunning things about this discovery and the analysis is that really the analysis depended entirely on the timing of when different types of electromagnetic radiation were detected, when the gamma rays were detected, when the infrared and optical light was detected. Eventually, the thing started glowing in x-rays and radio waves, which fits with this idea that a gamma ray burst is produced with this sort of spotlight beam. It was called a jet of particles shooting out of the event. And the idea is that you only see a gamma ray burst if the jet is pointed at Earth. And in this case, the burst was a little bit weak. So people think that it may have just been pointed not quite straight at Earth. And that's actually consistent with these other forms of radiation appearing later on, because as the jet slows, it will radiate in a wider cone. And so the x-rays and the radio waves should show up later. With all of these instruments directed at this source, we just got this cascade of data. What what are some of the results that popped out from, you know, the first, like, I mean, I assume we're going to be digging through it for years, but so far. Uh, two seconds after the gravitational wave signal was detected, NASA's orbiting Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope detected a blast of high-energy photons called gamma rays. They detected what's known as a, a short gamma ray burst. And the fact that they were able to detect that burst coincidentally with this merger of the two neutron stars, that confirmed a conjecture from the early 1990s that short gamma ray bursts, which are amongst the most energetic explosions in the universe, originate in these uh, neutron star pairs. There was another one about timing as well, which is how quickly the gravitational waves reached us compared with the other the electromagnetic spectrum. That's right. So there are some alternative theories of gravity out there, people trying to improve on Einstein's theory of general relativity, which is our current best explanation of gravity. They predict that gravitational waves will travel more slowly than light speed. And this event proves that gravitational waves travel at light speed. 
the object they detected started out glowing relatively bright blue and then fairly quickly over a matter of uh, just a few days faded to a dimmer red. And that observation fit very, very well with a model of an object called a kilonova. And this had been completely hypothetical. But in that model, the idea is that when the two uh, neutron stars swirl into each other, they rip each other apart and they fling all this neutron-rich matter into space. And very quickly, this matter undergoes this complicated process of nuclear interactions called the R process that's thought to produce half the elements heavier than iron. And then the really heavy elements in that cloud soak up the bluer part of the spectrum of the radiation because all this stuff is incredibly radioactive. And so you get this red glow. the color change. Yeah. And that big red glow and how it evolved over a few days fit very tightly with this model of a kilonova, mm -hmm. which had been put out there to explain, you know, where in the universe this R process might go on. Oh. And it might be that seeing what's happening in a supernova is what is next on deck. You know, there's a lot of questions that were raised by what we saw. Will we be able to see a supernova with the same sequence of events? Well, certainly that's the hope, that the gravitational waves will give you this new, completely revolutionary way of finding these exotic objects, right? And it is thought that when a core collapse supernova goes up, that it will produce a detectable gravitational wave signal. It's going to be a lot weaker than the neutron star signal. So we could only hope to see a supernova explosion basically within our own galaxy. But that's certainly a possibility, and it's certainly something people hope for. So that might be the breakthrough next year if we capture that. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. We'll have to see, right? So uh, Yeah. Um, I was going to say, so there were some other some other ideas about what we could see or, or better understand now that we kind of have this, this setup in place. So we could also see, we could learn more about neutron stars themselves. What's, what's the mystery there? So neutron stars are these very, very odd objects, right? They're the cores of sort of medium-sized stars that have blown up in supernovas. You know, the star wasn't big enough to collapse all the way to a black hole. And so what it collapses to is essentially one gigantic organic atomic nucleus, right, that measures somewhere between 20 and 30 kilometers across and mm -hmm. weighs somewhere between the mass of the sun and one and a half times the mass of the sun. So there are these incredibly dense objects. And one of the things that nuclear physicists would like to know is the property of the matter in there. How stiff is the matter? You know, this is a sort of big unknown, what the character of this matter is. And in principle, you can determine that from exactly this kind of a merger. If the matter is stiffer, then for the same mass, a neutron star will be, will be somewhat bigger in radius. And if it's squishier, it will be more compact. And so when two of them spiral together, if they're bigger, they'll start ripping each other apart earlier in the event. Right. If they're smaller, that will be later. And it will change the signal uh, from the gravitational waves. And that's something that, that astrophysicists would really love to see. You know, it just really makes me feel like the whole Earth is an observatory now and that we can, we have these, all these different tools, we can gather them all up and point them at something and learn in this amazing array of different channels now. It's quite breathtaking what, what happened here. Um, it's also uh, undoubtedly a harbinger of things to come in astronomy and astrophysics. In coming years, 
astronomers are going to complete what's known as the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, and it's going to essentially image the entire southern sky every three days. And its entire purpose is to look for so-called transient events, these, you know, explosions, things that go bang in the night. Mm -hmm. And then the whole game is to spot these things and then to have people uh, in bigger telescopes with higher sensitivity and in different instruments, different parts of the, the electromagnetic spectrum, go look at them. And when you think about combining LSST with gravitational waves and uh, the kind of communication that we have now where people can, in seconds, find out that something has yeah. been uh, discovered and, and swivel and look at it. This is really, I think, how a lot of astronomy is going to be done in the future. It's going to be these kind of mad frenzies uh, where everybody turns to some spectacular uh, event. Um, wow. It may not be quite as spectacular as this one, but I think that there's going to be a lot more of this so-called multi-messenger astronomy going on. I think that this is really showing how the whole field is going to evolve. Okay. Oh, Adrian, thank you so much for talking with me. It's a very exciting find. All right. Thanks, Sarah. Adrian Cho is a staff writer for Science. Be sure to check out our nine runners-up and the people's choice for Breakthrough of the Year at viz.sciencemag.org slash Breakthrough 2017. Up next is Jen Golbeck with A Year in Books, what we loved, what we missed out on, and what to read next. Now we have Jen Golbeck. She's here with her very last book review of the year, which is much more of a smorgasbord of books. Welcome, Jen. Glad to be here. This is our first year of doing a monthly books review segment. Um, and you got to read, what, 12 books in uh, a year? <laughs> more that, than 12, yeah. Is that a lot? Or <laughs> I mean, it's not a lot in terms of like all the books I read in a year, um, but it's a lot of science books. Usually I read fiction, and so this was a great way for me to read more science. Okay. Well, so what was your favorite of the ones that you had to review for us? Without question, Never Out of Season. That was the one I, I remember that had the the potato famine. The potato famine. This I think about the potato famine all the time now after reading this book. Uh, but it's not just about the potato famine. So that book's about crops and how we have driven ourselves to have these monocrops, which on one hand is really good because they're super productive. On the other hand, they're really susceptible to diseases. You get one disease and the whole crop gets destroyed. And just I love that book because the narrative of the potato famine, or there's another chapter on the destruction of the cocoa crop in Brazil. They're like movies. Like It's just the beautiful stories that go with it that are so compelling. Um, I think there should be a bunch of movies made out of that book. It's, It's great. So for someone like me who really loves story and narrative-driven fiction, it was a great science book because it taught me all this amazing science, but in like this really compelling way. What did you miss this year? You know, there are thousands, thousands of science books. They get mailed to us and we can't read all of them. So which one did you miss out on? Yeah. So I took a pass on Homo Deus, uh, which is by Yuval Harari. He wrote Sapiens, which was a big hit a few years ago. Um, So this is his follow on to that. It's a big tome and it became a bestseller, which I think we knew that it would. But I also figured every other science podcast would be talking about it. And it's big. Uh, And I did, I eventually did read it. But when I was looking through it, um, I 
took a pass on it because it's more of a futurist look. It's saying, here's how uh, technology is going to change us as a species and how we're already becoming kind of humanoid and part robot, um, which I think is compelling for a lot of people. But I'm a computer scientist. I build a lot of this technology. And so I get caught up really on a lot of the details. Um, so it's it's really interesting. I have, you know, I take issue with some of his arguments, but I think if you're into that kind of futurist look of how technology is going to change humanity, uh, that's a good one to pick up. Yeah. I think we should do some other kinds of recommendations, too, kind of end of the year, maybe holiday purchases. Um, What are some of the coffee table books, like just big beautiful pictures uh, that are are out and people should consider picking up. Yeah, I spent a lot of time looking for good ones that came out this year. One is a little different. So this is from NASA. It's the Earth and Space Coloring Book, which sounds like it's going to be an adult coloring book, but it's printed with a really beautiful NASA photo of a planet or a galaxy or a nebula on one side and then kind of a line version of it on the other side. So it's gorgeous. It has all those beautiful pictures. But then also you could go in and color them yourself. So it's not just a black and white coloring book. It has great pictures in it. Um, So that's one if you want like an activity book, but not for little kids. The pictures are crazy that you have to color in. Another great one is the photo arc, One Man's Quest to Document the World's Animals. It came out in March. It's, I think, 400 pages. It's huge. And uh, the photos are all on either black or white backgrounds. It's really portraits of all these crazy animals. So it's gorgeous. And uh, if you have an animal lover, it would be a really good gift for them. Is that Joe Satori? It is, yeah. Oh, he's fantastic. I saw a talk by him. He's just he's, – he has all these videos of – him trying to wrangle an animal into getting a portrait done. I mean, I was looking at this. I'm like, how did he get these animals to stand there? I try to get my dogs to stand there for photos. (laughs) It's so hard. (laughs) Okay. How about, so that's photographs and, you know, we're focusing on science books, but what about a science book for maybe someone who doesn't do science for a living? Yeah. And so this would be a good Christmas holiday present book too. Uh, One that I had thought about reviewing and I think whatever month it was, March, we just had a really long review, so I couldn't <laughs> couldn't work it in there, um, is Bianca Busker's book, Cork Dork. The subtitle is a wine-fueled adventure among the obsessive sommeliers, big bottle hunters, and rogue scientists who taught me to live for taste. And uh, it's a book really about wine, but about the science of wine and how we taste it. Um, so if you're a wine geek, this is a great book. And so if you're looking for a present, I, I would love to give this like with a nice bottle of wine to someone who's a reader and wine lover. Last, let's just talk about what maybe people should pick up if they have a week off and they want to do some fireside reading. One book that came out this month is uh, Leaving the Wild, The Unnatural History of Dogs, Cats, Cows, and Horses by Gavin Erringer. And it's really about dogs, cats, cows, and horses. He picks those four species and talks about how they were naturally in the world before we domesticated them, the process of domestication, and kind of what it means now that we've done this to them. So what does it mean if you have a super productive milk cow? Is that a good life for the cow? What about dogs that we have bred where now a lot of them have these, you know, really terrible, painful genetic diseases or are just unsuited for the environment that they're living in? Uh, You know, what do we do to these animals? So on one hand, we've formed a partnership with them. And there's been a lot of great science books, especially about dogs and how we've co-evolved. But what obligations do we have to them to give them a good life? And he really goes out and talks with people who are doing things with these animals. So he talks to people who fight dogs 
for example, in the book, as well as advocates for dog rescue and that kind of thing. Um, He takes some pretty firm stances in the book, so um, I don't necessarily agree with all of them. He has one section, for example, on what we should do about pit bulls. Should there be bans on pit bulls in cities? Um, I don't think there should be. He's very much in favor of that. But that's the kind of thing that he looks into. What are the different ways we're using these animals and living with these animals? And what's the way that we should adjust that to try to make it better for them? That really sounds very interesting. Thank you so much, Jen. It's been a great interview and a great year of books. Great year of books. Yeah. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.